All right, we are in part five of our series that we're calling This Is Us. And it's basically a series on the theology of the body of Christ. And so what is the church and what is the believer's responsibility to the church? And we've covered a whole bunch of things so far. There's one body with many parts. That was week one. And we talked about the purpose of the body of Christ, basically to worship God, to evangelize the world, to build disciples and to show the love of God to the world. That's the purpose of the body of Christ. Then we talked about balance, finding balance in your purpose, because you don't want to carry too heavy of a load. This is, a, I mean, heaven and hell are at stake. And if you carry too heavy of a load that doesn't really belong to you, it can be crushing. And then last week we talked about the Corinthian error, and that is division in the church. You know, it's one body with many parts. And so we don't want to divide the body into different bodies. We want to have the different parts do their function, but unified together as one body. And this week, we're going to take the Corinthian error and basically see how far it can go with what I'm calling the Pharisees error. So last week, we talked about division. You know, it's very destructive to the plan of God. But I think division can arise innocently enough. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to come from deep evil motives. You know, people are just sort of naturally you know, they might cheer for one church over another, or, uh, you know, like I like Paul better than Apollos. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a deep evil thing, but it's still very destructive. And there's an example here from Mark chapter nine that basically shows how easy it can be to have division come in innocently enough. So I'm going to read Mark nine thirty-eight through 40. And it says this teacher said, John, this is John of the disciples. Teacher said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. So a real interesting scenario. Jesus is given a report from John. Hey, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name. So we stopped them. <laughs> we told them, don't do that. You're not one of us. And of course that wouldn't cross our minds today. You know, it wouldn't be like you see somebody praying for someone and you're like, I don't know them. I'm going to tell them to stop praying. You wouldn't think that, but this was a time when the followers of Jesus were a fairly tight knit group. Of course, Jesus was preaching to the masses as well. But it's interesting that someone that the 12 didn't even recognize, didn't know at all, was going around casting out demons in the name of Jesus. That's really pretty interesting. But it shows that whoever is doing the work of God, if there's somebody that the 12 know or not, that they're to be considered part of the group, part of the one body serving together. Jesus said, if they're not against us, they're for us. So people outside of your group, outside of your church who are helping are on our side. So people we don't know (laughs) that are working for the kingdom of God, they're on our side. If they're not against us, they're for us. And the side note with that is, 
you know, the local church isn't the only show in town as far as the gospel is concerned by any means. Good Hope Church does not have a monopoly on the gospel. The local church just does not have a monopoly on the gospel. Whoever believes in Jesus can serve Jesus, can pray for people, can do good things for the kingdom of God. It doesn't have to be in the local church setting. It can be outside of that setting. And I think that's shown here by what was going on with this individual who was casting out demons that the 12, you know, that John, the apostle didn't even know, had no idea who it was. This simple, easy kind of like, you're not one of us thing can grow into something actually insidious and something evil. So I want to go to Matthew chapter 12 and read a few different passages from Matthew 12. Here's where division starts to turn into what I'm calling the Pharisees error. So it's not just the Corinthian type of childish division. This is getting into something a little bit darker. So we'll go to Matthew 12, starting in verse nine, going on from that place, he went into their synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep that falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. What? They're going to kill Jesus? So here Jesus demonstrates his power by signs and wonders. There's an incredible miracle. A man with a shriveled hand is healed right there in church. So Jesus is demonstrating who he is by signs and wonders. And you would think that would make people believe in him. But apparently for them in that context, Praying for people at the service was breaking the Sabbath. So you couldn't pray for healing for somebody. That was breaking the Sabbath in that context. And of course, Jesus thought that was ridiculous. So he prayed for this man and said, stretch out your hand. And his hand was healed and restored. An incredible miracle. But it made them so mad that they were going to plot to kill Jesus. Instead of saying, wow, that's amazing. Look at that wonderful thing that you did. That's great. I guess I misunderstood who you were. You know, like, help me understand this. Instead, they're like, oh, he, he did that on the Sabbath. He prayed for somebody at, at, you know, at church and they got healed. And I was, we need to kill him. That's getting dark. That's just crazy. And it continues this opposition where Jesus does miracles and he'll do them in ways that the religious people don't like. Like again, healing on the Sabbath in the synagogue, just, you know, rubbing people the wrong way according to their religious tradition. Then we just jump down a few verses to Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. We're going to read through verse 37. So an amazing section of scripture here. Then they brought him a demon possessed man who was blind and mute And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. 
If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Again, we see Jesus doing very kind and wonderful things, miracles happening. This man who is possessed by a demon who has stolen his sight and his speech is healed so that he can both talk and see a double miracle for this individual. So really kind of amazing, but the Pharisees don't like it. They say it is only by the prince of demons that this fellow drives out demons by Beelzebul. I looked up Beelzebul. Basically, it could literally be translated Lord of the Flies, often equated with Satan. So the prince of demons, this is talking about, they're accusing Jesus of demonic activity, satanic activity when what he's doing is of the Holy Spirit. You can see this is getting dark. Earlier in the chapter, they want to kill him for healing on the Sabbath. Now they're saying that he's satanic, demonic, that the spirit that is operating in him is the spirit of the devil. They're going to a really dark place. This is not good. Jesus is doing good things and they're just super mad at him. And I, I, You know, on a side note, before we get a little bit deeper into the uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit stuff and everything, verse 30 that we just read, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters is very much uh, sounding like a contradiction to what we read in Mark 940, where it says, you know, whoever is not against us is for us. So is whoever's not against us is for us. Whoever doesn't gather with us scatters. So which one is it? Basically, there's no contradiction here. What Jesus is saying is if somebody outside the group is doing things of God, hey, guess what? They belong. They're part of us. If somebody inside the group is doing evil things, they don't belong. It doesn't matter if you're of the religious elite like the Pharisees or if you're somebody that the apostles have never even heard of. If you're doing the things of God, you belong. If you're not doing the things of God, then you are On the outside, you're an enemy. You're somebody that's opposing the gospel. So this last verse, verse 37, for by your words, you will be acquitted and by your words, you will be condemned. Jesus is obviously referring back to what they said in verse 24. The Pharisees heard this. They said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So he's saying, 
You need to be careful. You don't be attributing what God is doing, what the Holy Spirit is doing to the devil. That's not good because that's what comes out in verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So we see in light of the fact that Jesus is saying, look, I'm doing this by the Spirit of God, not from demons. The kingdom of God has come upon you and you think it's the kingdom of the devil. This is basically blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus explains that. So I'm going to give my definition of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because, you know, we've gone from, again, kind of childish division, which I think is just natural all the way to the unforgivable sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Like this, we've gone a long way from people squabbling and people, you know, kind of picking a team in an inappropriate way. Now we're into blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So what is that? I'm going to give you my definition. You know, there can be subtleties to the definition being a little bit different, but my, here's my definition of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit would be calling the Holy Spirit, the devil, on purpose to sabotage the plan of God for your own personal gain or your own ministry or religious gain. So calling the Holy Spirit, the devil on purpose to sabotage the plan of God for your own personal or religious gain. I do not believe this was accidental. I do not think that the Pharisees just sort of thought this and just said it whimsically. I think this was a plan. I think they were putting two and two together that this was not accidental at all, but that this was a black belt level sin. Like the Pharisees here who are saying it's only by the prince of demons that this fellow drives out demons. I think they know exactly what's going on and they are doing a power play to try to sabotage what Jesus is doing and try to turn people's minds against the spirit of God and the goodness of God and the power of God. So I think this is a black belt level sin. It's way up there. I think they're fully aware of what's going on. That's why verses 31 and 32, that's why he's so harsh. You know, I tell you every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks the word against the son of man, that's Jesus referring to himself. You speak a word against me, no problem. Anyone who speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Super harsh. And again, I think it's because they knew what was going on. The Pharisees were putting two and two together. They're seeing Jesus is very powerful and he's from God, but that's going to undermine their ministry position. It's going to cause people to go follow Jesus and not follow them. So they decide to undermine Jesus first, to tell lies about him, lies about where his power comes from, to keep people from following Jesus so that they'll keep following them. So they're trying to sabotage what God's plan is for their own personal gain as followers of God. And I think they absolutely knew what they were doing. So some people get worried. They're like, oh, I think I've committed unpardonable sin. I I think I've done it. You know, here's the deal. If you are worried that you have, then you haven't because the consequences of having committed the unpardonable sin is a completely seared conscience where you just don't care anymore. That's the consequence of it. That's the judgment that comes. So if you're worried, that means your conscience is not seared. And that means that all you need to do is ask for forgiveness wherever you are, you know, come to Jesus and you'll be okay. Ask for forgiveness, 
get free, and that'll work. So I think that in this context, the Pharisees that were saying that Jesus was casting out demons by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, I think they knew exactly what was going on, and they were intentionally fighting against God. It's something that Gamaliel warned the people against in Acts chapter 5. So I want to jump to Acts chapter 5, 29 through 39. We have a continuation of the Pharisees and the religious elite opposing the message of Jesus even after the crucifixion when now the apostles are bringing the message forth and they're seeing amazing miracles happen. So let's pick this up. We get some continued persecution starting in verse 29 of Acts 5. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God had given to those who obeyed him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. So again, we get some pretty strong reactions. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared claiming to be somebody and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and all his followers were dispersed and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. So apparently this was pretty common. Somebody would come and lead a group of people and they would kill him. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. So these Pharisees are actually in the middle of this. They're fighting against God. And I believe they're intentionally fighting against God. They know what they're doing. They're not accidentally, naively wandering into this. They're fighting against God because they want to keep their position and they know they'll have to take a lower position if they don't resist and undermine Jesus. Then one of the things that's really interesting is this Gamaliel who is convincing everybody, look, don't kill Peter and his uh, companions. Don't kill them. You know, maybe it's from God. If it is, you know, you don't want to be fighting against God. If it's not from God, it's just going to fade off because Jesus is dead. So this Gamaliel was actually the teacher of the apostle Paul when the apostle Paul was a Pharisee and not a believer in Jesus. So I think that's neat. Paul studied under Gamaliel and he was one who aggressively opposed the gospel. He was one of those people. He was dragging Christians into court. He was there at the stoning of Stephen, cheering it on. I mean, he was not a good guy. And so did the apostle Paul commit the unpardonable sin? Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, 12 through 14. It says this, this is the apostle Paul speaking in a letter he writes to Timothy, a young minister. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. 
The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So we see here the Apostle Paul was one of these Pharisees and he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. So he was blaspheming, he was persecuting, and he was violent. And he acted in ignorance and unbelief. And it says here, I was shown mercy because... Why was the Apostle Paul shown mercy? Because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. So what happens with ignorant, unbelieving, blasphemers who are violent persecutors? (laughs) Well, they can be shown mercy because they really don't fully understand what they're doing. This is another reason why I think when Jesus is talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that they clearly knew exactly what they were doing. The apostle Paul was convinced that Jesus was a fraud. He was fighting violently against it because he thought he was standing up for God. When he found out he was actually opposing the plan of God, he turned 180 degrees and started preaching Jesus as the Christ. He was ignorant and unbelieving. So I think if you're ignorant and unbelieving and you're doing all kinds of terrible things against the church, against the cause of Christ, that you can clearly be forgiven because that's the situation with the apostle Paul. And so if you find yourself going the wrong direction with all of this, turn to the Lord. I believe there is forgiveness there even for ignorant, unbelieving, blaspheming, violent persecutors. So go to the Lord and find forgiveness. So What's the Pharisee's error? Let's just make it clear. Here's my definition of the Pharisee's error. It's sabotaging God's plan for your own personal or ministry benefit. Sabotaging the plan of God for your personal or ministry benefit. So sadly today, this still happens. You know, it happens inside the body of Christ, this one body that's to be working together for this purpose when it's fighting against each other is very bad. I've seen this happen in a variety of different situations. Let's just give a few examples. One would be an insecure senior pastor, a senior pastor who's not so sure about their giftings. And there's an up and coming staff pastor, an associate or a youth pastor that, you know, is a little cooler and speaks better. And, and people are starting to really like that staff pastor, then that insecure senior pastor sometimes can kind of undermine and sabotage what that staff pastor is doing. And that's a disaster. Can't be doing that. That's this Pharisee's error. If God is using that other person in powerful ways and you try to stop that, you're doing exactly what was going on with the Pharisees trying to stop Jesus. Then there can be territorialism with church planting and other ministry development. I'll use church planting because I love church planting. I've been a church planter. I've helped other people plant churches. I just love starting new churches. It's very fun for me. But one of the things that can happen is when you go into a community, the other churches can get mad. Even if the community is 90% unreached. You know, 90% of them don't go to church. Well, the 10% would be like, hey, what are you doing here? We got this handled. No, you don't. (laughs) We need 10 more churches in Cloquet, let alone the, the region. I mean, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. We need more workers. We need more churches. We need more ministries. We need more things going on because there are so many people who are not being given a coherent explanation of the gospel and a way to plug in with the body of Christ. We need, again, I'm serious, 10 more churches in Cloquet. Once we get there, we'll reevaluate. Now I'm guessing we'll need 10 more after that because there'll still be people unreached by the gospel. So 
we don't want to, like for us here, if a new church was being planted in Cloquet and we said, hey, don't you come over here. We're, we're taking care of Cloquet. That would be sabotaging somebody else's ministry, something of God, something the plan of God, just for our own gain. And that is, again, ridiculous. Competition between churches and ministries can get to this point. Again, it can be kind of that run-of-the-mill, just sort of childish, I don't like you kind of thing, competitiveness. But once it crosses a certain line, it can get into this pharisaical error. And I've even seen it on the mission field, man. I've seen things happen where people will sabotage something just to prove that they're right. And it will hurt the mission's work. We need to not do that stuff. So this is to fellow ministers, lay and paid. Be very careful. If what they are doing, if what someone else is doing is of God, but you speak ill of it, you could be committing the Pharisees error. If you, because you're jealous, if you, because you're feeling territorial, if you are speaking ill of what somebody else is doing for God, and that's of God, then you could be committing the Pharisees error. And you don't want to get in that because you go far enough down it. That's where Jesus starts talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So you don't want to go down that road. Rather, you want to be like John the Baptist. John the Baptist We see in the Gospel of John chapter 3, a fantastic expression of how to be kingdom-minded in our work for Christ. So John 3, 26 through 30 says this, They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. So John is like, yep, he's baptizing more. That's fine. That's cool. That's how it's supposed to work. And that's how we need to be. I don't care if revival comes through another church and people are getting saved and being ignited in their love of Christ and their desire to share the gospel and they're growing in the Lord. And if, if it comes through other means than us, hallelujah. Why would I want to stop that? Let's just embrace the goodness of God however it comes. Very, very important. How does this uh, relate to the the non-ministry person, you know, the regular person, you know, instead of saying sabotaging God's plan for your own personal ministry benefit, I would say it's sabotaging God's kingdom for your kingdom, putting your kingdom first above God's kingdom. That would be the lay person, the regular person's way of walking into the Pharisee's error. I just want to read from Luke 18. 18 through 27, this is the story of the rich young ruler. I've heard it referred to. Let's just read through that. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, he's talking to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, 
How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard him asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So this is a man who's doing the right things. He's a good guy. You know, he's keeping those basic moral commandments. And then Jesus says, all right, you want in? Come on in. Sell your stuff. Come follow me. He's inviting him to be one of the disciples who walk with Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. I mean, this is an amazing invitation. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to keep my stuff. I'm not going to go with you. I'm I'm not going to do it. So he says, no. And Jesus replies with some pretty strong words, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. He's saying, this guy's not making it. You know, I mean, do you go to hell for that? Do you go to hell for not selling everything? Uh, Not exactly. For most people, God's not going to ask you that. But coming to Christ means submitting your life to Christ, whatever that means. It means putting God's kingdom first and your kingdom second, your kingdom underneath that, submitting your life you know, your wants and desires underneath the kingdom of God, God's plan for you and God's greater plan. You want to submit that to God's plan. That's part of the deal. And so this young ruler basically said, now my kingdom is more important than your kingdom. His personal kingdom, he elevated above God's kingdom. So it's the same basic concept as the Pharisees error, just not in a ministry situation. But it's not the whole conversation. We didn't read the whole thing. You know, he finished with verses 26 and 27. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? You know, they're like, wow, if if this very promising person who's doing so well, you know, isn't going to make it, it'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for this person to enter the kingdom of God. He's like, well, who's going to be saved then? Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So again, We trust in the goodness of God to bring us salvation. We don't earn it ourselves. We trust God. Then the next few verses, 28 through 30, Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. So Peter says, okay, that guy wouldn't leave what he had, but we did. What does that mean for us? Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. In the account of this, in the book of Mark, it says a hundred times as much in this life. So what Jesus is saying here is you're not going to have a net loss if you put God's kingdom first. Your life is going to be better. You're going to receive more when you put God's kingdom first. So the truth is, when you put your kingdom above God's kingdom, you don't sabotage the kingdom of God. You sabotage yourself. Because again, no one will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. There is a net gain when we submit our lives to Christ. If we think, oh, I want to keep all my stuff, and so we don't submit to the kingdom of God, then it, we actually end up with less. We sabotage ourselves, not the kingdom of God. So we want to grab hold of that. But all right, let me bring this down for a landing. We've been flying all over the place talking about a whole bunch of different things. So I just want to, I want to bring this down. What do we do with this? How do we avoid putting our personal kingdom above God's kingdom? How do we do that? Well, there's one verse we're going to close with that Jesus says in Matthew's recording of the Sermon on the Mount. 
And it is a life verse for me. And he's talking about worry and these sorts of things. And then in Matthew 6, 33, Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. You got your needs, you know, your your food and clothing, your personal needs. You've got those needs, your kingdom. He says, seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So that's what we want to do. We want to seek first his kingdom. And what is his kingdom? You know, his kingdom for us, probably an easy way to think about it is it's the body of Christ. That one body is the kingdom of God and the purpose of the body, what the body is doing. That's the kingdom of God. Put that first above your personal kingdom and then live in the ways of God, his kingdom and his righteousness. So do you believe the Bible's true? I believe the Bible's true. I believe as churches, we need to seek first his kingdom, not our church's kingdom and his righteousness. As individuals, we need to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. This is what we need to do. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then our kingdom will be taken care of. Now, if you've never said, yes, Jesus, I'm in. I want to be on your team. We talked a lot about how the apostle Paul was forgiven from being a really a bad guy. Forgiveness from God is available. You can have it. And I want you to shoot me an email, pastormike at goodhope.ag, and I'll help you through that. But really all you need to do is pray, ask God for forgiveness, and then pledge your life to learn his ways and live for him. If you do that and you mean it, you can come into the kingdom of God in his forgiveness into his blessing and into the purpose for your life. But let's pray that we could seek first his kingdom and his righteousness so that we don't fall into division so that we don't fall into the Pharisees error. So pray with me if you would. Heavenly father, we know that your kingdom is the best kingdom and that you are working on this earth through the church through your body, one body with many parts. Lord, let us not be party to division. And Lord, let us certainly not get into the Pharisees error where we sabotage your plan for our own plan, where we sabotage your kingdom for our own kingdom, where we sabotage what you want to do for our church or our ministry. Obviously it makes no sense, but it's It can be easy to get sucked into that. And so, Father, I pray that you'd open our eyes to see if we are committing the Pharisees error or the Corinthian error, division or sabotaging your kingdom. Lord, help us to see that. Help us to repent of that. And Lord, help us to seek your kingdom first. Not our kingdom, not our ministries, but your kingdom for the one body with the many parts that is doing all these things that are part of your plan on this earth. Lord, let us seek that kingdom and empower that kingdom first. And then let us live in your ways, the ways of righteousness, seeking your righteousness. And father, then we trust you to take care of us. We trust you that you will add those other things to us as well, that you will bless us and encourage us and strengthen us as we do that. So Father, I pray your blessings upon us. I pray that you would show us your love, show us your mercy, show us your peace, show us your grace so that we can be filled up with all of those things and share those things with this world that so desperately needs them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.